Welcome to MediaPath. I am Louise Palanker. I'm Fritz Coleman. And we are MediaPath, a podcast for people like Fritz and me who love diving deep into our media obsessions, consuming books, movies, music, TV, podcasts, and beyond. Today, our guest is author Mark Elliott. He is a celebrity biographer who explores the wonders of fascinating folks and shares his discoveries with us through his many wonderful books. But first, Fritz, what have you been enjoying this week? Well, I'm sticking to documentaries this week. I found two fantastic ones. One is more fantastic than I thought it was going to be when I set out to watch it. This one is called The Way I See It. Now, this is a focus feature Focus Features Film, which is a company owned by NBC. That's why the platform for this documentary and uh, the channel that's shown it several times is MSNBC. It, it's a documentary about Pete Souza, who was the White House photographer for a portion of the Reagan administration, all of the Obama administration. It's going to be available streaming, too, in a couple of weeks. But it's directed by Don Porter, who also did a spectacular film about the life and times of John Lewis called Good Trouble. I watched that a couple of times, a wonderful film. Now, the majority of the skill of a White House photographer is, first, to be able to sense a moment, and second, to know how to blend into the woodwork to get that moment on film. In other words, don't call attention to yourself. And this film proved to me how much more powerful a still photograph can be with historic moments and freezing moments in time. Pete's got this amazing collection that goes around the country with him in kind of a very artistic PowerPoint presentation. They're funny and touching and uh, tense uh, with the anecdotes that uh, come with each picture, uh, tender moments like Michelle and Sasha and Malia, and then extremely tense moments like the iconic photo of everybody in the war room watching the bin Laden raid. But, Wheezy, this isn't just a photo retrospective. Pete Souza feels like the current administration has soiled the office of the presidency. So he spends a lot of energy becoming an advocate for President Obama and his dignity and his morality, and that by uh, osmosis happens for Vice President Biden, too. I just love this thing. At the end of it, you want to watch it again because of the way it made you feel about the past. One of the fun parts of the movie comes near the end, where you learn that for every outrageous Trump moment that we have all endured, Pete Souza will tweet a, f a photo of President Obama being quite the opposite and embodying quite the opposite in, in terms of his presence, his bearing, his wisdom, his judgment, etc. They've compiled a lot of that content into a book that they're simply calling Shade. I love it because he's throwing shade on Trump. And I guess he's got this enormous Instagram following because the photographs are not only beautiful as standalone photographs, but his little taglines are really wonderful. But it's, it's, it will just make you it, it, it's it's like we all feel. Please take me back. Make me remember why I love my country. And, mm -hmm. and this thing will help you. I've watched one it. day, one day, once again, we will have a president. And yeah. it, it leaves us hopeful for that, for that occurrence. Good point. Now, 
Here's another. This might be one of the greatest nature documentaries ever done. I know that sounds like uh, hyperbole, but it's not. It's called My Octopus Teacher. It's directed by and stars Craig Foster, a South African nature photographer, and it co-stars a female octopus that Craig has found in the kelp forest of the Atlantic Ocean near his boyhood home off the west coast of South Africa. It's on uh, Netflix now, probably will be everywhere. The setup is that Craig spent his whole career as a nature photographer all around the world. He's just burned out. So he wanted to go home to South Africa and not work. But eventually, he couldn't help himself. He crawls back into the water, takes his camera with him, treks into the kelp forest underwater, and discovers this octopus. And for one year, he tracks and attracts this octopus. And ultimately, I know it sounds odd, he befriends it. They end up having a relationship, and he follows it for a year, which is about the lifespan of this species of octopus. And you are blown away by how miraculous this creature is. For instance, here are a couple of fun facts. 85% of their cognitive power isn't in their brains. It's in those tentacles. They have an astonishing ability to change their bodies as to color, to be able to camouflage themselves and protect themselves, and their uncanny ability to protect themselves from their main predator, which is a pajama shark. They call it pajama because it's got stripes. But at the end of this thing, Weezy, and I can't wait to hear your opinion of it, you come away feeling that there very well might be a spiritual connection between humans and the animal world. I found this very, very moving. Well, we already know there's a spiritual connection between humans and the animal world because of dogs and cats and goats and any any creature or horses that you've been around where you know you're you know you're connecting. I'm con we're connecting. This is powerful stuff and it's it's what we feel as humans. And so when we sense that animals feel it as well, we feel just this sacred connection to nature. And being able to go underwater to a environment that is unfamiliar to us because we don't spend we don't we don't get to spend a tremendous amount of time there exploring as we would in a walk through the woods. It's like another planet. I'm sure those analogies have been made before. But we don't expect that kind of powerful human to creature connection that we that we get to experience here on Earth. And so when we when we watch it unfolding, we're just astounded. And then the other thing is the intelligence of the octopus. What kind of creature are they? What's the name for a it? A mollusk. Yeah, they're a mollusk. They're, they, they, they hatch out of an egg. They don't have parents. They raise themselves. And the ingenuity and, and brilliance and courage of an octopus, it, it will act, actually blow your mind. There's oh, this... man, I, I was tearful a couple of times, particularly at the end when he brought his son back into it as the continuity of life. Oh, my goodness. It's heart pounding. And there's... There's this scene where the octopus, in an effort to hide from his predator, the shark, covers himself in shells and then huddles down and then kind of sort of whispers, I'm just a throw cushion. Ignore me. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's going to be the hottest Halloween costume of the season. <laughs> right, yeah. Well, it was breathtaking. And I'll tell you what was really powerful about it. This guy, Craig Foster, doesn't say much. There's not a lot of descriptive dialogue. He lets the photography and the visual interaction 
do all the work for him. He doesn't say much. And so his absence of words and, and not over describing it, I thought was powerful. I just loved it. I, I, I texted my daughter at one o'clock in the morning and said, watch this movie. It's so good. It, so it really is beautiful. Us? And it's it really just kind of renews our appreciation for all of God's creatures. It, mm -hmm. they're, they're so, each one is so miraculous and Mm -hmm. it, there's a lot of drama going on right beneath mm -hmm. the surface mm -hmm. every, every day. Tell me what you've got for us this week. Oh, so Fritz, have you heard of acorn? No. Okay. Acorn is a thing that falls out of a tree. And uh, no, of course I've heard of that. In addition to that, acorn is a, it's like a British content, Great Britain streaming service. It includes a lot of content out of Australia. Why should we give any more of our five monthly dollars to another streaming service? Well, it features fine programs from Australia. And remember that most of our great American actors are Australian. What sort <laughs> of... <laughs> What sort of fare might you enjoy on the Acorn? Well, they have a show called Mystery Road, which is billed as Outback Noir. I did not know this was a viable genre. Appears it is. My husband and I are watching a show called A Place Called Home, recommended to us by Jeff Sherman and Wendy Liebman. This is a straight up soap opera, but again, it's Australian, so it's gorgeous. This is a post-World War II period piece, which touches on all kinds of modern themes, PTSD, social classes, homosexuality, infertility, anti-Semitism, and meddling parents. It stars Marta Dusseldorp, who appears to be a mandatory cast member in Australian dramas, and Brett Climo. You'll see her in a lot of these things. Okay. And Brett Climo, who I call Australian Fred Astaire because he is so deliciously svelte and stylish. He's basically always wearing a suit on a ranch. What more can I say? I highly recommend this. I am an addict. Uh, so if wow. you just want to get swept How away, how do you subscribe to it? Is I, I don't oh, even know. Uh, do you have Apple TV? Yes. Yeah. So it's go to apps, go to your apps, the app store, and then look for Acorn. Oh, okay. And then they will not be shy about taking your five dollars. They'll be like, <laughs> okay. oh, one month free, Fritz. There's <laughs> just not enough time to watch this stuff. No, I know, but this, but Acorn's really good. Okay. Now, another streaming service. So it's we're in a pandemic, Fritz. I'm subscribed to everything, okay? Good. It's confusing, Fritz. All mm -hmm. I'm saying is the, the programming on Apple TV Plus is really excellent. And there's a film on there called Boys State. It's a film by Amanda McBain and Jesse Moss. It documents a one-week American Legion-sponsored program in which over 1,000 high school boys from across Texas are tasked with forming a representative government from the ground up. This film won the Sundance Grand Jury Prize. It offers a tremendous window into many aspects of humanity, including the male mind. I heard myself softly praying the words of RBG, women belong in all places where decisions are being made. The film also exposes... <laughs> <laughs> You'll see. It's like, this is like so, such a razor's edge away from Lord of the Flies. Uh, the <laughs> film... <laughs> because it's all boys. The film also exposes the ways in which the general public welfare is often sacrificed in the competitive scramble for political supremacy. There are kids here who will terrify you and kids who will inspire you. The two most impressive being Steven Garza and Renee Otero. So boys state, find a way to find it. It's, it's wow. really fascinating microcosm. Couple of good selections there. Yeah. As is our guest, I can't wait to right? meet him. Please welcome our guest, Mark Elliott. Hello, Mark. Hey, Mark. Thanks for coming today. 
Mark Elliott is the New York Times bestselling author of more than a dozen books on popular culture, among them the highly acclaimed biography Cary Grant, the award-winning Walt Disney, Hollywood's Dark Prince, and most recently, American Rebel, The Life of Clint Eastwood. Plus, the music biographies Down Thunder Road, The Making of Bruce Springsteen, To the Limit, The Untold Story of the Eagles, Paul Simon, A Life, and Death of a Rebel, about Phil Oakes. He has been featured in many documentaries about film and music and has written on the media and popular culture for numerous publications. Coming in 2021, from Mark, look for Hag, the untold story of Merrill Haggard. Mark divides his time between New York City, Woodstock, and Los Angeles. Thank you for joining us, Mark. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you for well, asking me to come on. What a career. How do you Man, choose? You, you, you have spent a lot of time investigating some of my favorite stuff. Merle Haggard, the Eagles. Man, I, I, I wish I could be you. How do you choose your subjects? Um, I, I really don't know. I get asked that a lot. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and say, I want to write about this person. I know that... Um, you know, I get asked this when I, I speak a lot at, at film schools and colleges, and everybody wants to know how I choose my subjects. And it's just, it's a, more of an instinctive thing than a calculated thing. Um, I was going to tell you that uh, my, my mother's favorite actor was Cary Grant. So um, mm -hmm. when I grew up um, in New York City, uh, there wasn't a lot, I, I wouldn't say there was an overload of culture in my household. It was a kind of a blue-collar, working-class uh, environment. But my mother had this um, recurring fantasy, I guess, that Cary Grant was going to come one day, sweep her off her feet, and take her to another land. <laughs> and that was always a very powerful image for me. And so um, after I had been involved in a lot of controversial works during my time living in uh, Los Angeles for about 20 years, um, ironically enough, I came back to New York City and um, started writing these so-called Hollywood biographies. And uh, the one I really wanted to do was Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. I guess there was some kind of cosmic link there between uh, my mother's secret desires and uh, and my feelings for my mother. Was your mother around long enough to see your work and understand that all was not fantastic below the surface with Cary Grant? I mean, the reality of his life is not as romantic as his screen life. She, uh, she passed away uh, early, in an early oh. age. She only saw only saw one or two books of mine, which temporarily relieved her lifelong anxiety that uh, at the age of 50, I'd be living homeless somewhere. <laughs> Please, somebody buy this word from me. So I, it's unfortunate. And my grandmother, her mother, who was um, uh, so attuned uh, to popular culture, she, uh, she had come over uh, in the early part of the 20th century from Russia uh, and loved the, uh, the Yiddish theater, the, the Russian great works of drama, and um, used to take me as a, as a child, uh, eight or nine years old, the oldest, 
down to the Second Avenue, Lower East Side of Manhattan, Yiddish theaters, and uh, we'd sit there, and uh, for two hours, I would be mystified. I would have no idea what they were talking about. <laughs> At the end, she would say, wasn't that great? <laughs> and I would say, yeah, great. You know, it was fantastic. And it was. And it taught me a lot uh, about theater, about communication, that communication is not only verbal. When you're in the theater, especially in movies, and uh, in all media, uh, there is a combination of ingredients, if I, if I may, um, that project image, style, story. Uh, later on, when I, when I went, uh, much later on, when I was uh, in my mid-twenties, uh, I was at uh, Columbia University's graduate program uh, in, fil in film. And I went there because Andrew Saris was teaching there, and he became my mentor uh, in, um, uh, for my uh, degrees. And from him, I learned probably more than from anybody else how to approach uh, writing a biography. Uh, to, to me, uh, a biography is really not about a life. It's about life. And when you, when you approach life through uh, the prism of somebody else's life, you can begin to understand what life is to these people, to us as their audience or fans or followers, and ultimately to ourselves. Uh, you know, what, what is it? Why do we care about these people? What have they done? What motivate, motivated them? Who are they really beyond the facade? Uh, that that is their their money facade, so to speak. Well, when you write about somebody, you write about their public light, and you do a really great job of cataloging their work, their public work. But you also write about the private person, and there there may be no celebrity who has more of a diversion between the Cary Grant that is presented and the and the actual man. In fact, he is quoted in your book as saying, "Everybody wants to be Cary Grant, even I want to be." Cary Grant. So talk about who, who he was and who he presented himself to be and the conflict therein. Well, you know, I always say that, that real life is, uh, um, can be so much more exciting than made-up life. Uh, Cary Grant had a very difficult childhood. He was born uh, in Bristol, England, uh, to um, parents who didn't get along. The father left the mother when Grant was, I think, nine or ten years old and moved to Southampton to be with another woman. And uh, to, make it, to make it happen, he simply had the first wife, Cary Grant's uh, mother, or Archibald Leach's mother, as his, his real name was, committed to an insane asylum. And uh, you have to remember, at the turn of the 20th century, uh, in Victorian England, if a woman had a headache, you could commit her to, to an insane asylum. She didn't want to cook dinner. She uh, didn't, uh, wasn't, had a headache that night, as I, I say. I would be so locked up by now. <laughs> <laughs> well, when Grant, um, Grant was told, or I should say Archie, that his mother had died. 
because um, it was considered uh, scandalous to, to be committed to a mental institution, uh, like the ones you always see in the horror films where people are like ah. that. Um, and then he tried to move in with his father and his father's new girlfriend. The new girlfriend didn't want anything to do with, uh, with Cary Grant's father's past. So he was kind of thrown into the street and um, somehow fell into vaudeville. He, he joined a group um, that was very popular in uh, lots of these kind of groups. Uh, Charlie Chaplin was also in one. And their two lives, in some ways, are very similar. Grant joined this group of boy, uh, young boy acrobats. And their, their whole act was doing tricks on stage, you know, like you used to see on the Ed Sullivan Show, for those of you old enough to remember. You know, he brings somebody out, they do four or five tricks, stacking chairs, tumbling, all of that. And that's what he learned. The act became so famous in England that they came over to New York City to play the vaudeville houses that surrounded Broadway and to tour across the country. There were, uh, vaudeville in those days was still a very big and primary form of entertainment, much bigger than theater uh, for American audiences. Well, he came, uh, he stayed several weeks in, in New York, and then when the troupe was getting ready to return, he decided he wasn't going back. There was nothing there for him. He was going to stay in New York and try to make some kind of a life for himself. Um, I, I love uh, uh, the connection of vaudeville to some of the most iconic entertainers, Bob Hope and Milton Berle and George Burns, because in order to survive in vaudeville, you had to be good at a lot of things. You had to be good at singing, you had to be good at dancing, you had to be good at comedy. And Cary Grant, as handsome as this man was, is also a great physical comic. And he had great physical timing in some of those uh, faster movies. And I, I, I think it was, a, it was a real college for being a three-dimensional performer to have come up through vaudeville. And your dressing room was a bathroom. And you worked seven days a week, eight shows a day. That's right. And, and uh, it, it, you know, the funny thing about, uh, about that, it's, it's a very good point is that the best actors in movies are the actors who could physicalize everything that they said. Uh, think of somebody like uh, Fred Astaire, not, uh, not a Shakespearean actor, but when you saw him in a movie, every line had emotion to it. Everything he did had a kind of a physicality. Uh, Gene Kelly, uh, another one, and all, all the, um, the, the dancing background actors had that, and Grant, certainly had it. I mean, right up until the end, the way he carried himself, the walk, uh, the, the shoulders, the, uh, the, the stature that he imposed on himself. And of course, in real life, he had none of that. He was uh, just a kind of uh, a waif, really, uh, a good-looking waif. Um, and those looks got a lot of doors opened for him. Um, a few years down the road, he was living in Greenwich Village with uh, a fellow you might have heard of called Ari Kelly, very famous um, uh, clothing designer in movies. If you look, uh, if you ever watch TCM, half the films uh, that in their credits for clothing design say Ari Kelly, 
Ari Dash Kelly. Well, he was he was a, a great pal of, uh, of Grant, and he used to make ties, neckties. And Grant would take them out to the corner of uh, 8th Avenue uh, or 6th Avenue and, um, and uh, 8th Street, very close to where they lived, and sell them. And uh, you know, using all that charm he had and that early magnetism, and he would make enough money for the two of them to survive. Um, and every once in a while, Grant would get a job uh, in the theater in vaudeville if they needed a tall, good-looking acrobat or straight man. And then he, um, he wound up in a show with Mae West. And of all the people who played important roles in, Hitchcock, in, uh, sorry, in Grant's life, I was going to say Hitchcock would be number two. Number one would be Mae West. And uh, people may not know this, or they may know it, but uh, Mae West ran uh, kind of an escort service in her young days in order to support her lifestyle. She always had, you know, she had that character, the come up and see me sometime character, you know, uh, good girls are fun, bad girls are more fun, all, all of that. <laughs> Constantly uh, being arrested, uh, her shows were being raided by the police for uh, too much uh, body showing, bad language. Uh, it was a kind of a routine thing, uh, like uh, the night they raided Minsky's, that kind of thing. So she threw private parties and needed escorts to be at the parties. And uh, in addition to all the chorus girls that she hired, to make a few extra bucks. She also hired good-looking boys, young men. And Grant was one of the boys or the young men that she hired. And the reason she hired him, not because he was a great actor or uh, uh, sophisticated, he looked like a sophisticate. Uh, he told him to put on a tuxedo, which he had Ori Kelly make for him, uh, clean himself up, get a haircut, and show up at this swanky uh, Fifth Avenue apartment where she was living. And he did. You know, it's almost like a My Fair Lady thing. He, because he looked like uh, a young, well-to-do, sophisticated young man, he got the role, in, in, in a sense. He played that he, role. That's fantastic. He would take all these rich women... Uh, rich, young, not-so-young women would flock to him. And uh, Mae West would make these deals <laughs> with them to rent out Cary Grant for uh, tea or whatever they were. It's so yeah. funny you mentioned that, because I just saw a movie, excuse me, Weasel, I'll let you go, because it's about this point, about uh, Rudolph Valentino, the one that starred Nureyev. I don't know if you saw that. It's an old movie. But he was a gigolo as well. He was a, he was a taxi dancer, and he was a gigolo... <laughs> I think I went into the wrong line of work. Well, you know, before there were uh, uh, McDonald's where actors could work and uh, pay their rent, they had to do had to use what they had. So uh, most of them had good looks, charm, and um, uh, youthfulness, and that was very appealing. So they were doing shows of one. But what that teaches you about Cary Grant, and this is the revelation, never in his movies, 
as soon as he gained control, which I'll tell you about if you'd like in a few minutes, he never pursued women. Women always pursued Cary Grant. And think back to all those wow. who kept her car, uh, you know, all, all the women who uh, he made movies with. He was always the good looking guy standing somewhere, reading a newspaper <laughs> on a train, and a woman would, they would meet cute and they would fall in love. But he was never the aggressor. That's how strong his, his charismatic appeal was. And it was recognized early on uh, by Hollywood. And the thing that separated him from all the other leading men is that the other leading men had their tongues hanging out for these beautiful women in the pre-code days. <laughs> and the women all had their tongues out, panting wow. over Cary Grant. And he got that from Mae West. She said to him, don't chase anybody. Let them come to you. Not coincidentally, Grant's first two movies are I'm No Angel and uh, the other uh, Mae West film, uh, the name I, slips uh, my mind for a second. But he was in two Mae West films playing that character who kind of pursues her, but she's really the one who sets all the traps, gets him up to her apartment, you know, the fur thing that uh, she always did, the hair. And that's the beginning. That's how Cary Grant broke into the movies, playing a role that she taught him in New York City as a jigger. Wow. That's fantastic. Now, did the way that he, did she work on the way that he spoke? Because to Americans, a British accent just sounds classy. But I know that in Great Britain, they're very cognizant of someone having an accent with breeding and someone having a cockney, more of a, you know, more of a lower, lower class type of accent. So does he have a Brist Bristol, the Cary Grant that we see in movies, does he have a Bristol accent or does he have, did he learn a more refined accent? Well, he, uh, part of his charm was this Cockney accent. I think of Michael Caine, also a big, very famous actor uh, in uh, America. And part of his charm was that Cockney accent. Now, Grant worked on it and reduced it. And, you know, to the American ear, any British accent uh, automatically makes you a superior human being. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and so he didn't have to get rid of the Cockney uh, completely, and he didn't want to because he felt that, uh, believe it or not, that he was a common man. That the it made him sound more approachable. What's that? It made him sound more approachable. It, it, it more approachable. That's right. More accessible, mm -hmm. uh, more uh, identifiable with audiences because not everybody who goes to the audience or goes to the movies looks like Harry Grant or. or <laughs> Uh, looks like Ava Gardner or whomever you want to slot in there. But the magic of film is that those actors and actresses can make you feel during the two hours that you're sharing with them of your life that there is something in Cary Grant that you share, uh, some connection that you have. And that's the difference between, uh, as far as I'm concerned, star quality and great acting. Uh, great acting, you sit back and you say, wow, what a wonderful performance that was. Uh, really, uh, that actor was so good in that role. And star quality, that's me up there. 
uh, you know, like Bruce Springsteen says, hey, that's me and uh, I want you only after listening to uh, uh, some, rec some rock and roll record by one of his idols. That's, that's the connection, that's star power. And Grant had it, you know, flowing out of his veins. You want to do the commercial, Fritz? Absolutely. Okay. Here we go. Winning season returns at my bookie. Winning season means doubling your first deposit. Winning season means survivor, super contests, and squares. At my bookie, it's time to celebrate the NFL season. Sign up now and make your first deposit to get a dollar for dollar match all the way up to a thousand bucks and grab yourself a free entry into the famed my bookie super contest. To play in the contest, all you have to do is pick five NFL games against the spread to have a chance at a hundred thousand dollar guaranteed in cash prizes. The best part is my bookie has thousands of bets to choose from, from the full NFL slate and the NBA playoffs, from live betting to championship futures. Every play you want to make is waiting at MyBookie. It's simple. Make your picks, win big, collect the cash, hit the door. Use promo code MEDIAPATH and double your first deposit. Now it's a no-brainer. Your winning season begins today only at MyBookie. Please. Mark, was Cary Grant gay, straight, bi, or does it matter? Well, to me, it doesn't matter. Uh, to me, um, he was so messed up in so many ways that uh, the manifestation of the absence or the loss of his mother, I think, had a lot to do uh, with his uh, sexual acting out. And also the fact that so many people idolized him and worshipped him, that uh, that was almost better than the real thing, uh, uh, because no responsibility uh, attached to it. You know, you don't, when he got married the first time, and I, I, I'll get right into your question by telling you that his first wife, Virginia Gray, uh, he married in London because the film company uh, that uh, was opening one of his films in in London, and um, so they paid for the honeymoon, and and so he decided, well, as long as we're going there, we we can have a honeymoon, we can get married in uh, London, and um, they get married, they go to bed, they wake up the next morning, and Cary Grant says. Uh, to Virginia, what are you doing here? And she she said, uh, um, what, what do you mean? I'm your wife. We just got married. And he said, yes, but that's where the movie ends. Um, wow. So uh, he saw life as a, as, as a movie. He, he had learned his education was watching movies, and movies always end uh, at least in his day, with a happily ever after ending, where the couple, the you know, boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl, they get married, they go into the sunset, they live happily ever after. But you don't see that. You see the courtship. You, you, you see the wedding. Usually the bells are ringing, and that's the end of the film. So um, he, 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 wasn't, uh, he, he was a homosexual man, and in the PR uh, universe, 
that existed then, similar to Rock Hudson. So uh, they they created these fantasy worlds because the audience would have rejected anything else. Uh, were it a more modern time, would he have been an out man who would have had a relationship as he rumored to have had with Randolph Scott and, and gone that way? Or was he truly bisexual and it was a back and forth thing all of his life? I'm not sure how uh, how sexual he was at all. Um, honestly, uh, to be honest with you, um, he had more than, a, it was more than a rumor with uh, Randolph Scott. They lived together uh, on the beach in Malibu for 12 years. You know, my friends always say, well, how do you know they were gay? And I, and I always say, well, they fought over the house when they got divorced. <laughs> <laughs> I can see no other proof that can be stronger than that. But, <laughs> but seriously, while uh, uh, unlike Rock Hudson, whose great fear in life was to be outed, uh, Cary Grant really didn't care. Uh, you know, they lived openly. Architectural Digest uh, came by one year and did a photo layout where the two of them are in bathing suits and working out together. It's, it's pretty striking. Uh, I think I have a picture or two of that uh, in, in uh, my book. But um, the studios were the ones that were worried, not Grant. Uh, and uh, this is what I wanted to tell you about him, which is why he wasn't worried. He was the first actor in Hollywood to successfully break uh, the contract prison. Um, when you, you signed, usually in the beginning for life until that big lawsuit uh, later on that limited it to seven years um, and then you maximum and you're out. In those days, if you wanted to be freelance, the studios would say, great, congratulations, you're a freelance actor, and then nobody would hire you. Um, and that was, the, that was how they kept actors and actresses in line. Grant was the first to be able to break that because he was so popular, and audiences were, just wanted to see him every day. So he signed two contracts, one with Columbia, pictures and one with RKO pictures. And he was able to pick and choose which films they offered him that he wanted to make. And that, that is how he was able to avoid the conventional roles of chasing women, because he mm. chose the pictures. He chose the roles that he felt showed him off to the best of, of uh, his potential. And allowed him to live with Randolph Scott. Because unlike Rock Hudson, who was, for lack of a better term, a starlet for a great many years at Universal, where he was a seven-year contract man, um, Grant uh, um, thought correctly, well, if I live with Randolph Scott uh, and uh, Columbia doesn't like it, RKO will like it. And if RKO doesn't like it, Paramount will grab me, as they often did, because he was freelancing. So he really, it didn't bother him. It didn't matter to him what people thought. And that's the origin of everybody wants to be Cary Grant. Even I want to be Cary Grant. Here he was, you know, gay or unisexual or 
whatever homosexual, bisexual, tri, whatever, whatever phrase you want to put on him. Um, he saw it as that guy in the movies, the guy that everybody wants to be. And for him, for his life, it was working out of this maze of misery that began uh, back in Bristol. Now, I want to tell you, if I just have a second, that when he got married, he hadn't seen his father in London from the day that uh, he was kicked out of, that, of, the, of the new life that was in Southampton. Um, he goes back for this uh, honeymoon and to open the film, and this guy comes out of the crowd, this older fellow, and he says, Archie, Archie. Grant looks at him, and uh, it's his father. And his father says, uh, uh, oh, let's, let's have lunch. Uh, I have something I want to tell you. And uh, Grant goes, okay, happy to see his dad. They go to a pub, and they're having a little lunch. And his father says, you know, uh, your mother is not dead. Uh, she was committed to an insane asylum. And would you like to go see her? Um, I will take you there uh, to see your mother. Well, if you can possibly Oof. imagine Oof. the psychological... I cannot. It's, no, in, it's no. insane. It, it's insane. It's abusive. It, it gets crazier. Uh, but wait, as they say when they're selling you those knives. <laughs> but wait. He goes to the insane asylum. They bring him in to see his mother, who's still alive. And she says, it's, so, it's such a thrill for me to meet Cary Grant. Oh, my. There is where oh everybody my. wants to be Cary Grant can be traced right back to his own mother, resurrected from the dead, thinks he's Cary Grant, doesn't recognize him as little Archie Leach. So with that kind of identity baggage, wow. it, uh, it's no wonder that anywhere he could find love, he found it. If it was in Mae West's living room, if it was in On the Beach with uh, Randy Scott, I mean, wherever he could find it, and most potently, on screen, where everybody loved him, even though it wasn't really him. He settled for the role because he needed that. After the trauma of seeing uh, his mother alive and she not recognizing who Right. He was. Well, he never had a chance to create self because he ran away and joined the circus. And on his path to creating self, uh, Cary Grant is created. And so I, it feels like he didn't know where that ended and he began. And so he's constantly balancing on a ball that the world expects of him. And he doesn't quite know who self actu actually is. And and then he, he goes to see, seek therapy. And you talk in your book about how they were experimenting with LSD. Tell us about that. Well, uh, his, his third wife, uh, Betsy Drake was his third wife, and um, she was a kind of a, a, a hippie. I don't know how else to describe it. Before there were hippies. Uh, she was in her early 50s, I guess maybe beatnik or something, but not really. She was more of a free love, uh, you know, Afghan flowing uh, <laughs> actress that he met in Hollywood, and uh, he decided to retire. 
to get married again, try it again, always searching for that mother that, you know, he, that would love him for himself, perhaps. They get married and uh, they go, they, he decides that he wants to leave Hollywood and live uh, in the desert, away from all the glamour, all the fakeness, you know, no fake sets, just desert. And they do that. They go and they, they go to the desert, and it becomes apparent to Betsy that there's something is not right up here. Um, he doesn't want to make love to her all that much. He's he's kind of distant. He he's law. He has no script. Is what it is, and and uh, uh, not a big improviser. So <laughs> he heard about this program that was uh, taking place, I think it was UCLA, where they were experimenting with this mind-freeing drug uh, called LSD, uh, for short, and that given in the proper doses, it could um, eradicate your inhibitions, uh, those walls, and allow the real uh, person that you are to come out. So you can imagine in the 60s with LSD, with the, this, this generation that popped out of their own heads with LSD, uh, no wonder they were, they were so uh, taken by it because it was a freeing drug and everybody was living the free life. So he went, he enrolled in this experimental, totally legal program and sure enough, um, a change came over him. He, he was able not to get rid of Cary Grant, which may have been lurking back there with this move to the desert to kill off Hollywood. More importantly, what he couldn't do with his mother, he was able to reconcile with Cary Grant. And that brought him enormous peace. That yes, Cary Grant was this guy, but Archie Leach is real. He's a real human being, capable of love, and um, he wants to make a go of it with uh, Betsy. And uh, all of that was um, all fine and good. What messed it up was uh, Alfred Hitchcock, who wanted Grant to come and uh, make, um, to, catch, uh, to catch a thief uh, in uh, France, in, uh, on the Riviera. And uh, it, it was, there's this great image uh, about this story where here's Cary Grant lounging around at the pool in, a, in one of those square bathing suits that he used to wear, uh, gray square body fitting, and uh, there's Betsy off somewhere lighting candles or something. And here <laughs> comes this black limousine down, uh, I guess it's Highway 10, right? Down Highway 10, straight to Palm Springs. And who gets out but uh, Alfred Hitchcock in a black suit, tie, white shirt, uh, you know, 110 degrees out. <laughs> and, uh, and there's Hitchcock. And Hitchcock uh, goes over to Kyra and says, I want you to be uh, in this movie. No, no, I gave all of that up. I, I don't do that anymore. I discovered a better way to live in a Hitchcock says, uh, Grace Kelly is going to be the co-star. <laughs> Grace Kelly is one of those women that 
Cary Grant adored. He loved her. Uh, there was something about that princess uh, thing that she had turned into, but to him, she had always been a princess, even back in her Philadelphia days. And he knew her from the New York stage where he worked before he went uh, to Hollywood. So he knew uh, about, uh, about Grace Kelly. And that was the carrot that, uh, that Hitchcock held out and um, he bit. And so he returned to film to go stay on the Riviera uh, down there in the Mediterranean for a couple of months to make this film where Grace Kelly falls madly in love with him, like in every Cary Grant film. And, uh, you know, the wonderful scene where they're on the sofa in her hotel room and uh, they kiss, they kiss, they kiss, and then the fireworks go off in the background. You know, that's pure Hitchcock, but also pure Cary Grant, because uh, that's what happens. That's what happens to women when they kiss Cary Grant in the movies. Fireworks. <laughs> Who was his favorite female co-star? Probably Grace Kelly. I, I would say uh, he loved Deborah Carr, uh, but for in a different kind of in a different mold. Uh, Carr was this reserved. British, um, I don't know, some people, uh, kind of an iceberg, I think. I think that was her, her calling card, was that you could never crack, you could never see her playing Blanche Dubois. I mean, that wouldn't be, <laughs> wouldn't be Deborah Carr. If it were, it would be a, quite an interesting performance. And going back to your original comment about he, he, the way he set it up, and this was part of his control in Hollywood, he was able to set up these relationships with women where he was the, uh, he was the prey rather than the predator. How did women feel about playing the predator against the male role? That seems like it was a sort of against social norms back then. You see the way people are lining up to vote today uh, in the news? It's an approximation of how how many women wanted to be in a film with Cary Grant, the biggest star in Hollywood, <laughs> the best-looking star in Hollywood, the least threatening star in Hollywood, and uh, someone who could make you a crowd. Betsy Drake was an, kind of an unknown minor actress until she married him and then made, I think, three films with him that put her on the map. Uh, um, uh, Eva Marie Saint, uh, who was in North by Northwest, always said that she loved working with uh, Cary Grant. I, I heard her say one time, uh, you know, my husband was jealous of, of Marlon Brando before they were married, but he was jealous of Marlon Brando because of On the Waterfront. But the one actor that he wasn't jealous of was Cary Grant. Um, because, you know, Grant didn't pursue Eva Marie Saint. If you remember oh, the that's film. so interesting. Yeah. She she uh, she is a, a, an agent who's assigned to make him a real person, and that, by the way, pure Hitchcock. And this is why I say Hitchcock so important to Cary Grant in North by Northwest. It's certainly an entertaining film, but Hitchcock knew exactly what to do with Cary Grant, and that was to take this fictional character and impose it on uh, this guy who's has no life. He's got a mama's boy, if you remember from the film. And by the way, the woman who played his mother was two years younger than him. <laughs> wow. Name. And she played his mother in a couple of films. Um, she, was, she was two years younger than he was. I could find the name uh, in a second. Um, 
But in that film, he's got no light. He's got no identity. And then he gets absorbed, pulled into this fictional world where he's a dashing undercover agent um, with uh, you know, all the MacGuffins, the secret microfilm and all that. But what's important about it is that he, through Eva Marie Saint's calculated pursuit of him, he turns into a real man. So it's like, it's kind of, it's like a Pinocchio story. She turns him into a real guy. And by the end of the film, uh, the famous train in the tunnel scene, they're, they're in the, the, the train car, the sleeper. And, uh, you know, Hitchcock cuts from the two hands. Uh, she's dangling off of uh, Mount, Ever Mount uh, not, not the, uh, the monuments. Uh, she's, Mount she's, Rushmore. Uh, Mount, thank you, Mount Rushmore. She's dangling, and he's holding on to her. And Hitchcock, you, know, you could do a PhD thesis about hands in Hitchcock. <laughs> that cuts to the, to the sleeping car in the train where he's pulling her up into the bed. So here you have uh, a character born out of fiction into real life. And then, of course, because it's Hitchcock, as soon as they embrace, the last shot of the film is the train going through the tunnel. So, uh, you know, uh, and that is the point of the film. And that's what Hitchcock saw in Cary Grant. Hitchcock, who was short, fat, and uh, forgive me, ugly, uh, but, but charming, always projected himself on screen as tall, dark, and handsome, and manly, always manly. And if you look back at all the Hitchcock uh, leading men, uh, there's Bob Cummings early in the 40s, uh, Gregory Peck, uh, I think he did two for Hitchcock, and then Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart each do four Hitchcock films because he saw by his lack of those attributes, how important they were, visual. How and he also cast women uh, in roles, women he secretly desired but didn't stand a snowball's chance in hell of ever pursuing. He put them in his movies too. Well, that yeah, I mean uh, that's Hitchcock and every producer and director. <laughs> <laughs> why? Why else go into filmmaking? <laughs> Uh, you know, all those actors who went who went to uh, uh, to acting school on the GI Bill. You know, all those <laughs> and became they're always whenever they're in an interview. So why did you go into <laughs> to meet girls? You know, they're always like, oh, to meet girls. Oh, Jack. <laughs> Clinton, all those same with me, same with music. Um, let's talk for a moment about your process because most of the people that you that you write about i'm wondering do you have their permission do you have an interview with them or is that that's not essential as long as you can line up a bunch of people to talk to and uh also how has it changed since the internet is it much easier for you to research and gather all the materials that you need to write a book uh, those are two great questions uh, the first one is it's always easier to write about somebody who's dead uh, mm. They have their first of all, there's an end to their lives. Uh, the story ends, and, and you have a legacy that you are dealing with. And usually, they're not the last person in their world to die, so there are plenty of people left. And so, what the way I see biography, um, my very first biography was a kind of an accident. 
Um, one of my very good friends was a fellow named Philoks. Probably heard of him. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> and um, he he came to me one day and he said, "I I, I want to make a, a documentary called the Farewell Performance of Philoks uh, down at um, uh, Folk City in Greenwich Village." And he said, can you do it? I'll, I'll help you get the money. And I was going to Columbia at the time in, in their film program. So I had all the equipment. I had friends who were sound people and uh, video people. And anyway, we made it. And I, you know, I always thought, well, this is a symbolic end uh, of that Phil Oaks. And uh, the next Phil Oaks will hopefully be much healthier and happier and productive, but it turned out to be the real end. Uh, nine months later, he committed suicide. And I was so shocked by that. I remember saying to my uh, girlfriend at the time, you know, we used to bring him up, we had a little country house, and we used to bring him up there and kind of dry him out and, and get him breathing some fresh air. And she, she was very fond of him. She, she, she liked him. He was a, a likable guy. Um, I said to her, how could this possibly happen? Who didn't stop him? Why did it, where, how, where did it begin? And that turned into my deciding to write about Phil before somebody else did and screwed it up. So I, I knew his brother, I called his brother who lives out there in Venice. And he said, okay, if you can, uh, you can do it, we'll open all the doors for you. So uh, it, it's like Citizen Kane is a perfect example. The film opens up with a newsreel telling you the facts of Kane's life. But the one thing it doesn't include is the truth of Kane's life. And so this reporter decides to try to find out who this guy was, what does Rosebud mean? You know, one of the great uh, MacGuffins of cinema mm -hmm. is uh, take a subject and see if you can figure out uh, um, a man's life based on it. Well, to me, and that's what I did with um, Death of a Rebel. It is essentially, biography to me is a detective story. Uh, you're Raymond Chandler for a few minutes in your own inflated imagination and you've got to put together the pieces of this mystery called another person's life and when i write about film you know i have a, a deep background in it both academically and emotionally the other the the end to that is is music because i grew up surrounded by it in my generation uh, and music just wasn't background noise. It was the background, the foreground, the, the soundtrack of your life. You ate with it, you slept with it, uh, you, you made love with it. I mean, it was more than you poured over lyrics. What does this mean? You know? uh, uh, and that, so to me, those attachments in my real life to movies and to music became the overall subject matter, which is why I, I said earlier, that biography isn't really about lives, it's about life. And you figure out how these people led their lives and why. Why? Now, those are the, you know, the questions, part of the journalistic thing that you are, who, what, when, why, how. The only ones that count are why and how. 
And if you had to get rid of one of them, get rid of the how. <laughs> I love that. And I hope you'll come back and talk about your music biographies. I'm currently reading the Paul Simon, and I'm going to read Phil Oaks. I know Fritz has a deep interest in in this uh, content. I want to ask well. you one question about the Eagles. Were you at all involved in that four-hour documentary about their lives? Was that before or after your book, or were you involved in that at all? Long after. Oh, okay. Please, long after. Um, there's a whole, uh, if we had another five hours, I could tell you how that book was written. I mean, okay. that, uh, that's otherwise known as the Great War that took place. In the wow. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, uh, it's still in print 23 years now and still still sells. And I still get email from kids saying, oh, I love this guy. I loved him and what happened to him. And several of them became friends with mine. Did you see the the Laurel Canyon, either of the two Laurel Canyon documentaries? I saw Martin? both. Yeah. What a time. It, what a time. What a place. And um, <laughs> uh, too brief. I thought both yes. documentaries weren't long enough. Mm -hmm. We wanted more of that. There's so much to cover. Just sure. a, it was a lot of fun talking to you, my friend. This could have gone on for a long time. Thank you so much for sharing your stories with us today. Yes, uh, thank you. And, I, and please... I, Please come back and we'll talk about music. I, I, I would love that. Uh, we would love for you to join us online on Instagram and Twitter, where we are at Media Path Pod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. I want to thank our guest. And you can find more about him at markelliot.net. Do I have that correct, Mark? Yeah. There's lots of great content and Mark with uh, a lot of really uh, fascinating people that you're going to see there. It's fun to browse. Uh, our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesco Demanda, Mosey Masenko, John Maddox, Bill Filibiak, Thomas Hubble, Brian Benna, and you. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path.